Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at the Nevada Independent. Dot com. I'm joined today by two of our reporters, Jackie Valley and Megan Messerly. Say hello, guys. Hey, John. Hello. Thanks for being here. It's been another busy week. Again, it seems like it's October of uh, 2018, not August of 2017 with everything that's going on. In fact, Megan, it already seems like there's a full-blown campaign going on in, in the state Senate. The third recall petition was filed uh, this week against the Democratic state senator. What happened? Yeah, so the, the third recall pet- petition, as, as everyone knows, last week there was one filed against Democratic state senator Joyce Woodhouse, and then a second one filed against independent uh, state senator Patricia Farley, who caucuses with the Democrats. Um, those were filed, and then this week we had one filed against Democratic state senator Nicole Canazaro. Um, what's notable about all of these seats is um, particularly Woodhouse's seat and Canazaro's seat they're, they're, they were up in 2016, which means they're not up until 2020. They're districts that you know are, are pretty even in terms of Republican and Democratic voter registrations. They were ones that were in play uh, during the 2016 cycle, and so you know if you were to try and change the balance of the state Senate, those would be two seats that would be you know easier to flip. And then um, Patricia Farley's seat as well is um, one that is possible to flip in the in the upcoming election. It's actually up in 2018. Um, so sort of watching all of that play out, there's now a group that's formed Decline to Sign uh, to try and oppose these efforts. Um, Senator Woodhouse has started sailing, sending out mailers, defending herself, you know, showing her standing with other teachers and, you know, saying that, that Joyce stands with educators and sort of pushing, pushing back against some of what we've heard being talked about at the door, you know, some people have mentioned that they've been bringing up sanctuary cities at the door, that she's been backing all this sanctuary city legislation. That's why they want to recall her. So she's just trying to push back on that narrative um, and make sure that they don't get those signatures needed to qualify the recall for the ballot. We also, uh, we should mention a couple of things here. First of all, that the, the map, the actual electoral map is terrible for the Republicans next year. The Democrats are all in safe seats. The Republicans actually have a couple of vulnerable seats right. at least. So this is clearly a way for the Republicans to try to gain an advantage going in into the election. Uh, but we did hear for the first time uh, this week from uh, State Senate Minority Leader, the Republican leader, Michael Roberson, who has essentially been hiding from us, but gave a statement uh, to the Review Journal that essentially said what, Megan? Yeah, so he, I mean, he was essentially, he was not taking any part in the efforts and did not claim any responsibility for them, you know, but he said that he was supportive of them and basically praised the efforts. Um, so people kind of wondered whether, you know, or to what extent um, he might be involved with it. And he didn't take any responsibility, but, you know, he definitely said that he's he's fully supportive of, of all the efforts, um, which was the first we'd heard from him since the, the first recall was announced. Also some news this week uh, from... Uh, the Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison, whose law office is handling uh, the, these recalls and who also made an announcement uh, toward the end of the week that probably does tangentially involve uh, the, the aforementioned Michael Roberson, right? Exactly. Yeah. So Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchison announced um, actually today on Friday that he's officially not running for, for re-election, which, which we all kind of knew, but he uh, he made it official. And, and as our listeners might know, you know, Michael Roberson is long rumored to been to be a candidate for Lieutenant Governor. Um, he's been interested in that seat for a while. He's not officially made that announcement, but that's sort of what we expect to happen. Um, but yeah, 
yeah, one of our colleagues, Michelle, uh, ended up catching um, the lieutenant governor after an unrelated meeting earlier this week and asked him about the recall efforts, given that his firm's involved. And he he called the recalls empowering and said that that it's a constitutional right. And he sort of, you know, said it's sort of up to the voters to decide what they want to do. Um, you know, didn't really offer any specifics about, you know, whether this is the right process or not, but he was just sort of like, let it, leave it to the voters to decide. It's interesting. I want to wrap uh, up this discussion on the recalls with this. I, I mean, I think a lot of people listening and even some people in these districts might uh, be confused. It's the end of an odd numbered year. Why are they doing this now? I explained some of the political uh, motivations. They have 90 days to, 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 to uh, gather uh, signatures on that. But we also, they will not give Give us specific reasons. We have picked up from our reporting some of the stuff they said at the door. The way the law in Nevada works, they don't have to submit the so-called 200 words of why they're trying to recall these people until they file uh, the petitions, which which could be as late late October or, or early November in the, in the case of, of the Nicole Canizaro one. But there was no obvious outrage during the session or afterwards that people might say, what are recalls for? How can they try to recall people when there's no obvious egregious transgression. What's the answer to that? Right, exactly. And I mean, sort of the answer to this is that it is about changing the map in, in the state legislature. That's the, the clearest reason. Um, someone suggested to me this week, you know, if you think about, you know, who you're going to go after in the Democratic Senate or Senate Democratic Caucus on, say, sanctuary cities, you know, Senator Woodhouse was not the most vocal <laughs> proponent of sanctuary cities. It would be Senator Kinsella. So if, you're, if, the, if the true reason behind the recall is saying, you know, we're upset about X, Y, and Z issues, they're not necessarily being targeted on those issues. You know, arguably with Senator Patricia Farley, you know, uh, I talked to uh, someone last week, one of the recall petition signers uh, or one of the recall petition backers, um, John Gibson, and he told me that there were a couple of reasons behind the recall. You know, her vote on the tax increase in, in 2015, um, you know, the fact that she had changed from being a registered Republican to, to being a nonpartisan and then caucusing with the Democrats, some some bills on uh, prevailing wages at schools and, and what have you. Um, so he had sort of, you know, characterize that around the sort of switch from her being a Republican to now moving to Democrats and arguably someone might see that as a little bit more, you know, justifiable. And that's definitely something that characterizes um, Patricia Farley. But, you know, as far as Senator Woodhouse being, you know, the, the biggest champion in the Senate Democratic Caucus of, of sanctuary cities, it's just sort of hard to see that, that and, actually playing out. And of course, the, the, these are the kinds of issues that would usually come up in a re-election campaign, right? You voted against it, not necessarily grounds for recall. But here in Nevada, there are, no, it's essentially a no-fault recall. You can file a recall any time after six months when when, when someone is in office. So there's no legal issue here. Uh, uh, this is all turning out to be a campaign uh, at, at the end of an odd-numbered year, which we have never seen. And by the way, we should tell people, never in history that we know of uh, has a Nevada legislator uh, been recalled. Jackie, let's talk about uh, one story that you worked on uh, this week. Uh, you got locked in a room, apparently, for like 14 hours and had to listen to uh, all of these candidates for an open school board uh, position. I'm being half facetious, but it was a very long day for you, and there were a lot of candidates before they finally uh, appointed one of their own. This is to replace Aaron Craner, who uh, suddenly resigned a, a few weeks ago. Yeah, it was a long day. Um, you know, on the bright side, it's nice to see that many people interested in helping education in Southern Nevada. Uh, and everyone was very passionate, regardless of whether they were super qualified or not. Um, so 
when Erin Craner announced her resignation in June, it immediately led to some calls from different community members for appointment of someone who is Hispanic. Uh, District G covers the Eastern Valley and portions of Henderson. Uh, so it's kind of a wide gamut of socioeconomic classes there, but there are a lot of English language learners and low-income students in that area as well. Um, and the board currently doesn't or didn't have any one of any Hispanic members on it. So, you know, when there were 13 people originally applied and um, one of them was Linda Cavazos, a uh, Hispanic, uh, former teacher, now a family therapist. And uh, when we got to the meeting yesterday, uh, she was one of the individuals who received a lot of public support right off the bat. Um, but throughout the interviews, I mean, she really came across as the most articulate, has done a lot in the community. She talked about how as a family therapist, uh, she's done stuff with bullying and different racial and ethnic issues and has pulled students together to talk about these issues. So she was the one that was really able to demonstrate that she did have the know-how to not only get in there and engage these families and students, but also understand these issues and try to help. Um, so she is uh, 66 years old and just seems like a real go-getter. <laughs> So it took several ballots, right, to get down to, to, to this new trustee. Is that right? In other words, there were several votes before they winnowed it down, right? You well, said there were 13 there, candidates? Yeah, so there were 13 candidates who applied. Three dropped out before the interviews began. One guy dropped out midway through the interviews because he said he noticed there were a lot of really talented people and he'd prefer to stay at the local level as part of the school organizational team. Um, so at that point, after they conducted all the interviews, the trustees talked amongst themselves and they each sort of threw out three names. And then from that, they narrowed it down a little bit more. And then there were two nominations for two people uh, to receive votes. But when they actually did the first vote, it was unanimous for uh, Linda Cavazos and Therefore, they didn't even do the second vote. So they didn't do. They didn't even need a, a second vote. One thing you said that, that, that interests me, and I think maybe interests people listening to this, is that there were a lot of people, and they were very earnest about getting on mm -hmm. to the school board. Uh, you've covered the school board now for, for a little while. People might wonder uh, what what is that board like? Is it is it more functional? Is it more dysfunctional? Do they seem to get along? And what power do they really have? We often talk. Uh, so Megan and I were up in, in in Carson City about all the funding issues. What is the school? board really do and 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 what what what, are, what kind of power do these people have well it's interesting the, the power question because that's uh sort of the unknown right now with the clark county school district's reorganization um in theory they're the governing body overseeing the finance of the school district uh superintendent uh, reports to them um, but now that the power is shifting to the local school level it, it's created some interesting dynamics in terms of what will the trustees really do and how much say will they have when now the emphasis is on letting parents and teachers and staff and principals at these schools really get together, figure out what their needs are, and then take control of their own budgets. Uh, so, you know, that was mentioned uh, during the interviews yesterday. I there, it hasn't been necessarily a happy group in the past few months. Uh, there's been a lot of tension between individual board members and also between some board members and the superintendent as far as the reorganization goes. Um, so I'll be interested to see how it shakes out now that we have a new face on the board, brings a little different dynamic to it. Um, and, you know, like it was acknowledged yesterday, uh, it remains to be seen exactly how their roles will change going forward. But, you know, they're trying to all be on the same page and say that they support it. Yeah, I mean, I guess what, what parents listening might might wonder about is, and, and you bring up the great point, this reorganization that's been a, very political at times and has been talked about a lot is going to repose a lot more 
power theoretically on site to the principals mm -hmm. and the teachers and, 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 and these committees that, that, that include parents. And so do, do, do the school board, is do, do they feel that, that not just that their power, but their responsibility for overall policy setting may be gutted by this reorganization? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the main concerns is where do you draw the line between what the school sites are able to decide and then what the school trustees decide. Uh, you know, they talked about how it's increasing the importance of really good communication between the superintendent staff and them so that they can work these issues out as they arise. But I think we'll see more of that as the school organizational teams uh, get more up and running and have a clear idea of what they're all about. Um, it's still a little haphazard. Everyone's new to the process. So I think we'll see some of that stuff unfold over the next few months to a year. So there really is a lot of uncertainty, though, at, at probably at both levels, right, and how this whole reorganization is going to work. Yeah, lots of uncertainty. And that's what everyone acknowledges is, you know, we are reorganized to a certain extent, but we haven't worked out all the kinks. You know, some school organizational teams are being more effective than others. So not not everything's sorted out yet. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. I'm glad I'm glad we have you watching that, uh, Megan. You uh, covered an event this week uh, that involved, I, I believe, the governor rode in on a white horse mm -hmm. to this press conference. It was actually Did he a, a unicorn. It was a yeah. unicorn. Mm -hmm. It was it was it was yeah. a unicorn. The governor yeah. rode in on to save the day. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a national story, actually, that 14 of 17 Nevada counties uh, did not have uh, 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 an insurer after I believe was it Anthem uh, pulled out, mm -hmm. and then suddenly the governor called this press conference and announced what? Yes, the governor announced that a. Uh, that they'd found an insurer. So Silver Summit, which is a subsidiary of the national health insurance company, Centene, um, announced that it was coming in and that it would cover these 14 rural counties. So anything that's not Clark, Washoe, or Nye County. Um, there's been a lot of sort of tumult within the, the health exchange here in Nevada. Um, just a lot of uncertainty about the future of the Affordable Care Act. There's been a lot of uncertainty about these cost-sharing reduction payments, um, which basically help, help subsidize insurance insurance costs. So, you know, if someone's supposed to have a $6,000 deductible, it helps, you know, might bring it down to 2000 or something to actually make some of these plans affordable and realistic for, for low-income people who, who might want to purchase them. Um, and so there's been a lot of uncertainty with that, a lot of uncertainty about the individual mandate. And this has sort of led a lot of insurers to pull out of markets, not only in Nevada, but across the country. There's been sort of a, a complete shift in Nevada. Um, one, of the, one of the insurers that was on the exchange this year, Prominence, pulled out. Um, Anthem pulled out of the 14 counties and then announced actually really recently that I was pulling out of the last three. So Anthem is now entirely out of Nevada. Um, so that now just leaves Health Plan of Nevada, which is a United Health plan here in Nevada, and then um, Silver Summit, which is Centene's plan. Um, and they're actually new in 2018. So there's only two plans left in Nevada on the exchange anyways. There's a lot of places across the country where there's only one or two plans available. So this is becoming more and more common. Um, but the interesting thing about Silver Summit and Centene is that Centene, um, their, their primary business is Medicaid. And so they kind of know how to serve these low-income populations. A lot of their clients bounce back and forth between being on Medicaid and then being on the exchange. So they're kind of used to dealing with this kind of clientele. In a lot of places, they've been able to use their Medicaid provider network and then transfer it over to cover people on the exchange. So they sort of have had that flexibility. Here in Nevada, they they had to sort of come to a different agreement uh, 
with uh, Hometown Health using their provider network sort of temporarily until they can build up their own. So it was sort of they had all these different partners had to come together and, and you know this was a big concern for the governor. He told this story at the press conference about how he was hiking on a trail with his daughter and the thought came to him that he was talking to Centene CEO and the CEO told him you know if if you if you if something ever happens if you ever need us give me a call and so you know Governor Sandoval in typical Governor Sandoval fashion <laughs> you know tells his daughter we have to stop right now I have to call him right now on this remote trail and he did and and uh, the CEO took his call and said we'll do what we can to help you out and and now here we are how did he get a cell signal do we, I know do, do we, right? do we know the really answer really good cell service <laughs> wondering that, in that trail <laughs> I wonder how upset his daughter dad you thought you were going to take a break from work and now you're calling now you're calling something you know I think one thing people wonder about on this Megan is the, the the Affordable Care Act repealing Obamacare has become so politicized and you saw while the governor gave a usual governor's hand of all statement I want to thank Centene for coming in Dean Heller said this is great that Centene is coming in but then said this shows why we need to repeal Obama you had the Democrats saying this just shows uh, what Donald Trump and the Republicans have done by creating and use the word uncertainty. Uh, is there any middle ground here on this? Do, do we know any specifics? on? And I'm not looking for, for, for the blame here, but is it because they just don't know what's going to happen in Washington that we think these insurers pulled out? Yep. But, I mean, that, that's sort of the crux of it. And, and a lot of it does come down to the, the big thing that insurers point to are these cost-sharing reduction payments. Um, and the administration has been sort of coy about whether they'll continue them. It's on a month-to-month basis. And so it's every month it's been waiting to see, you know, will we have them this month? Will we have them this month? Will we have them this month? month. And we're at this period right now where, you know, plan, plans are trying to set their rates for the next year. They're trying to figure out, you know, are they going to be on exchange, off exchange for the next year? And all this has to happen within a certain time frame. So the sort of month to month game makes it a little bit hard for insurers to predict what's what's going to happen when the, the administration has not committed to continuing those payments. Um, so that, that's a big question. And obviously, there are broader questions, too, about you know, can the Affordable Care Act be fixed? And, you know, I think you talk to, you know, even Democrats, you know, Democrats agree there are changes they would want to make to make it better. Um, but so much of the conversation is centered around, you know, repealing it entirely and replacing it with something new um, or repealing significant portions of it. Um, and so we haven't really had that conversation recently about, you know, could we strengthen the Affordable Care Act to make it better? Because a lot of the goal is just to get rid of it. So uh, should people in Nevada be concerned, I guess, is one of the questions I'd ask. You mentioned what there's only a couple of, of, of providers mm-hmm. uh, now. So it's still on kind of shaky ground, right? Right. So in the 14 counties, there's only one provider, Silver Summit. And, then, and in the three, Clark, Washoe, and Nye, you have Health Plan of Nevada and Silver Summit. Um I talked to the the executive director of the Silver State Health Insurance Exchange, and she told me she's cautiously optimistic. Um, you know, this is a good step now that there's some coverage in these rural counties. But it's been a rocky few months, you know. Um, it's It's been really hard for the exchanges and trying to predict what they should do, you know, what to tell insurers to do. There's just been a lot of uncertainty. And so I think there's some hope now that maybe, you know, the, the payments will continue and that there might be some sort of stability on the horizon. But um, I, th- I think it would be, I don't know that we can say with any degree of certainty that that's, you know, not going to change in, in a month or two months or even a couple of weeks from now. So the governor should hold on to his white horse or unicorn or whatever he <laughs> yeah. may have to ride in again yeah. <laughs> relatively <laughs> <Who> soon. <knows? laughs> Jackie, you've done a lot of uh, coverage of business stories in the economy, and you did a story this week, I think, that was that people might be interested uh, when they're thinking about what does the Nevada economy look like uh, these days. And, and this report that you wrote about looked at a specific segment uh, of the economy and found what? Uh, well, the report looked at wages uh, over the past year and found that uh, the blue, what they were terming the blue-collar jobs were, rose um, 
by double digits since 2012. So that's about five years out from the recession. Uh, they specifically pointed to a lot of manufacturing jobs, so terms like lead automated machine operator and that type of thing. And th- those jobs increased wages by 12, 13, 15 percent over that time period. So what the if officials are saying is, you know, this is a little bit more proof that we are really rebounding from the recession. A lot of people will say, well, you know, are we really? Do we have all these people back to work or in jobs at good wages like we did pre-recession? And they say this is one more uh, piece of proof that they are doing better. But I guess uh, the thing about Nevada and, and, and you hear about the economy, I mean, we've basically been a service economy, mostly a service economy. We know what the wages are like in, in, in the casinos, especially the ones covered uh, by the Culinary Union, at least those jobs. Those are those are pretty good jobs. Uh, and we've heard all this talk over the last few years. I think people have had, heard about, you know, Tesla's coming. These are going to be great jobs. And Faraday, whoops, uh, the, 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 <laughs> they, they, they were coming. But changing the very nature of, of, of the economy. Uh, do, do, we, do we see... Uh, anyone thinking that that's really happening yet? In in terms of diversifying the economy? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what they were pointing to was, you know, when you look at what wages are rising, it is manufacturing jobs, which isn't or wasn't our bread and butter for a very long time. And now we're finally seeing that those wages are increasing. And it's because of, you know, uh, supply and demand. We're getting more of these jobs and companies coming to Nevada, but not enough people necessarily to fill them. So the companies are being forced to pay more to get the good qualified people in those jobs. <laughs> and one thing you're looking at, and I know you're going to do a lot more of, is is these people are moving here, the, 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 these new kinds of jobs are, but the housing market mm-hmm. uh, in both of the urban areas has gone kind of bonkers, right, again? Right. And so that's one of the issues. I mean, there's always uh, the good and bad and the ugly of everything that happens. And while this is mostly a good news story, it does create some challenges in terms of road issues and housing. I mean, there's floods of people moving to northern Nevada for some of these jobs and simply not enough housing. Um, Or the housing that is there is just way too out of reach in terms of price. So that's something that's being looked at by a number of officials and everyone from city managers down to home builders and developers. So one thing that's going on right now, Megan, that uh, uh, I don't think I, even I expected to be happening and it's been going on for months is that the Nevada U.S. Senate race has already been going on for a while. Uh, we, we are recording this podcast on a Friday. On Saturday, Danny Tarkanian is having a, a big rally. Danny Tarkanian's wife, Amy Tarkanian, the former Republican Party chairman, was on TV a couple times saying stuff uh, about Dean Heller and about how much her husband loves Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> In, in comparison, you this week, uh, and you can go on the site and find this at the NevadaIndependent.com, uh, pointed out that there are already these actual billboard campaigns from outside forces that have started. And the outside money in this Senate race is probably going to be bigger than any other Senate race in the history of this state. Yeah, yeah. So at so, uh, the beginning of this week or starting this week, um, the Democratic National Committee started uh, putting up a, a mobile billboard. They have a mobile billboard, mobile billboard <laughs> and a staff. Static billboard um, near the Las Vegas Strip attacking um, Senator Heller over his positions on health care, which, you know, comes as a, a surprise to no one. Um, using the the sort of picture, the still image and the video of um, him laughing at that lunch with President Donald Trump, where, you know, Trump kind of goaded him over his positions on health care and 
you know, joked, you know, oh, is he going to, you know, he wants to remain a senator, doesn't he? And uh, and and this sort of image of Heller laughing, you know, which which we I think we all kind of assumed would, would be used in countless campaign ads. And sure enough, it's happening. Um, so those ads claiming that Heller voted to take away health care from 328,000 Nevadans, uh, which, you know, it, there's a lot of back and forth there. And if people want to read to figure out, you know, the nuance of all of that, you know, where that number comes from, they, they can go on the site to read that because it's kind of a complicated issue. But but the gist of that ad is that, you know, Heller Heller really did, you know, vote vote one way. He said he wasn't going to vote on the Senate Republican bill. And then he he voted to move the discussion forward. And then he voted against the actual proposal and voted against the repeal. But then he voted for skinny repeal. So there's just been a lot of back and forth. And, and so I, I think that will continue to be a, a big issue in the campaign. And then the other ad um, paid for by the National Republican Senatorial Committee is going against uh, Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Rosen, who's running to challenge Heller, going after her for uh, being too close to Pelosi, saying she stands with Pelosi, um, and also saying that she voted against Nevada veterans. And the, they point to these two bills that that Jackie Rosen voted against. Um, she ended up voting for the final version of both bills, but they, they say the fact that she voted no on the first draft, you know, means she's anti-veteran. And so the fact check kind of goes into that as well, as well as this claim that she has stood with Nancy Pelosi. And we actually found that she's voted with Nancy Pelosi less than the the uh, than Democratic Congresswoman Ruben Keewen or Democratic Congresswoman uh, Dina Titus has. Although quite a bit. She's still up in the yes. 90% range, Yeah, quite a bit. Right? 90, yeah, 91%. I, I want to say Titus was at 95 and Keewen is at 97. And, and I guess what I want to tell people, and I hope they will go check uh, these fact checks, so we're going to make a habit of doing these all cycle long, especially in the U.S. Senate race, is it's not so much the rating that we assign that, 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 that Megan or any other reporters really don't decide. That's on us, and we have a three-person team at the at the editor level that decide that, but how deeply that, that we, we're going to go to check uh, each of these things and put them in context and show the kinds of things that you just talked about, these veterans bills. There, There's a final vote, there's preliminary votes, and this is what happens in every congressional and Senate campaign, is they will often take preliminary votes to try to hit these folks. So if you really want to get uh, the, 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 the scoop on what's going on, you should uh, check out our fact checks, uh, so to speak. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, we're going to talk about upcoming... Uh, issues right now. Uh, and But before I do, I want to say that Megan and, 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 and her colleague Riley Snyder will be up uh, in, in Reno next week covering uh, uh, the scheduled appearance of the president uh, at an American Legion conference in Reno. We expect that uh, to be quite raucous up there. So we'll cover that speech. Uh, and, and, and so that will be uh, going on. And also next week, uh, we'll have some coverage on the podcast, at least a preview of uh, another big event that's going to be taking place uh, uh, following weekend, which is Adam Laxalt, the Attorney General has Mike Pence and others coming to his so-called Basque Fry, where he he'll, he'll either uh, formally announce or the big talk will be that he's running uh, for governor. So first, uh, you Jackie, let's give our loyal podcast listeners a preview of what you're working on. What's coming up in your future? Well, I've been spending a lot of time this week digging into the whole community benefits plan that is promised between the Raiders and the community. There was a meeting of the stadium authority. Yeah, there was this a week. meeting of the stadium authority yesterday. Um, back in July, we'd been told that the community benefits plan would likely be at that meeting in draft form. Um, it wasn't. Uh, neither was the. Uh, agreement between UNLV and the Raiders. So those are two key things that haven't really been brought forward yet. Uh, so there's become this somewhat of a philosophical debate among different community members about what that community benefits plan should be and look like and include. So we're going to dig into that and see where it stands. 
Well, that'll be a good piece to read. That's coming this weekend, right? Yep, it'll mm-hmm. run Saturday. I, I always le- love using the podcast to make sure that my <laughs> reporters are meeting their deadlines. <laughs> and Megan, I know you've already turned in uh, your your piece uh, for the weekend. Tell everybody what that's about. Yeah, so so my story for the weekend is looking at this idea of of sanctuary cities, and obviously there's there's a lot of definitions for that. But looking at how Republicans have already started to use this as a campaign issue and build it up to be a campaign issue in 2018, um, you know the sort of polling that, that shows it's a, it's a good issue for Republican primary voters and, you know, shows Republicans as, as tough on crime. And we, we saw a lot of that during the sh- session with uh, Republican Senate leader Michael Roberson. So it, it talks a little bit about what happened during the session as well. And then, you know, it talks a little bit about the de- from the Democratic side, you know, what we can expect to see. Um, you know, Democrats are always talking about comprehensive immigration reform and are generally, you know, supportive of, of immigrants and, you know, expanding protections for them. Um, but talk to some folks who, think Democrats should be doing more um, and, and haven't done enough. And so that's going to be kind of an interesting issue to watch in, in 2018 is how the Democrats push that as an issue and then how Democrats respond to that. And as you mentioned earlier, it's being used apparently in some of these recalls, or at least one of them uh, yeah. that we that we know about. So that look, we'll look for that uh, story this weekend as well. Megan and Jackie, thanks for coming on uh, with me on the podcast this week. Of course. And that's all the time we do have for Indie Matters this week. We want to know what you think. We always want to know what our listeners think. So if you have ideas, criticism, or even that rare morsel of praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. That's ideas at thenvindy.com. You can also check out our site. I've mentioned it already, the nevadaindependent.com. We have a lot of great uh, reporter content, op-eds, and columns there. And please rate us on iTunes and subscribe to us and we can be found on Google Play and a whole lot of other platforms. As always, I want to thank our great hosts here on the beautiful campus of UNLV at KUNV. They do a great job of of letting us use their microphones every week. And as always, many thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us all sound. Say it together, guys. See? I did. That, that was all Megan there. <laughs> Jackie, you, Jackie, you sound podcast smooth too, I assure you. It's only me who has the shrill voice. And I am John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>